Welcome to the 442 podcast where we dig into the biggest stories in football. I'm Connor Pope and today we're going to be delving into the biggest and most important story of the week and possibly the season. Two teams, six miles apart, 279 years of history between them, but one saved and one condemned. We'll be discussing Barry's expulsion from the Football League with Barry fan Tom Pickup, Bolton Wanderers' reprieve with 442 staff writer Chris Flanagan, and the wider context of this issue, as well as what other clubs could be at risk with football finance expert Kieran Maguire. We'll start, though, with Barry. Founded in 1885, they spent 17 years in the top flight in the early 1900s and hold the record for biggest FA Cup final win with a 6-0 victory over Derby County in 1903, a margin only matched by Pep Guardiola's Manchester City earlier this year. But on Tuesday, they were kicked out of the EFL. Tom, Chris, thanks for joining us. Tom, let's start by talking about the football club. How long have you been a Berry fan and what has been the general trajectory of the club during that time? Well, I have been coming since I was about six or seven years old, probably the end of the 80s, when uh, Berry had a bit of money then. We had Terry Robinson as the chairman and uh, my dad was actually on the board as a director. So I saw things firsthand. I got to meet the players. Uh, after the game, we went to get autographs from them. So I've been really involved almost, you know, from the day I can remember going down to Gig Lane. And uh, through the, throughout that time, I've, I've seen so many uh, ups and downs. We had our first problems when Hugh Eves, who was the major financial backer up till the 90s, he was a stockbroker and he lost all his money on the stock market. We then eventually dropped down into the basement division again and subsequently went into administration uh, in the early 2000s. All this time, though, uh, the club was run by local businessmen, local Berry fans, and there was absolutely no outside involvement. So even though we had really near misses in terms of winding up orders uh, and threats that we were going to go out of business, we didn't, thankfully. Uh, we survived. We grew again then, of course, in the Stan Turnant era, which is the most successful era in my lifetime, when from 95 to 97, we had back-to-back promotions all the way up to the championship. Uh, and you just you can't imagine Berry in the championship these days. It seems like a long time ago, but it was pinch-yourself stuff then. And we competed, stayed up, until Stan Turnant the following uh, summer went to Burnley. And we then had Neil Warnock. And you know I won't go into all that, but that was a bad period for the club. <laughs> We went back down the leagues uh, and then that's when we went into administration. I think it was 2002, 2003. Um, But we were sort of just about surviving. We had a great input from a guy called Mark Catlin, who's actually one of the directors on our chief executive at Portsmouth, who pretty much uh, kept the club going through real financial diligence, a little bit of money. And we were able to, in the Alan Neil, Richie Barker era, go right back up. And I think we may well have uh, gone all the way back to the championship. But then another dreadful appointment with Kevin Blackwell. And that scuppered everything. The money situation caught up with us when Mark Catlin left. And then, uh, of course, this Stuart Day took over. Now, the Stuart Day uh, era, I think, has been the most disastrous. And the, the main reason why we're in the predicament we're in today uh, he came much heralded with all this money, but it was more the off the field stuff, which he sort of stopped. He basically didn't involve the fans in any decision making process. 
My dad was no longer a director by that time, but he was an honorary vice chairman. He was stripped of that title uh, and he was given absolutely no hospitality when he'd effectively been given, you know, free passes for life for what he'd done to help the club in the 80s. So that was very hurtful for our family. But as a fan, you were worrying that all this money that was being spent on wages, you know, we've had players uh, as recently as Jermaine Beckford, we've had James Vaughan, uh, loads of these people, Leon Clark is another one who we don't think somehow we could afford them, given our wage structure and our crowds and all that. So at the back of your mind, you're thinking this is going to catch up on us. Then you hear rumours, of course, of the, the mortgages that are being put on the ground with these astronomical interest rates. And you think somehow this is going to, this is going to end uh, badly. After you know, we, had a, we had the promotion with David Flickcroft, which was excellent, on a big budget. But then the disastrous season, not last one, the one before when we finished bottom with all these big earners, people like Harry Bunn, who came from Huddersfield, who were in the Premier League then, we thought this could be the end and will Stuart Day still run the ship? Of course, he kept a back seat until last November when we started the season brilliantly under Ryan Lowe to get back up into League One. But then you hear just rumours at the club, nothing was announced, that he'd sold for a pound to this Steve Dale. Now, again, no one really knew who he was at the time. And this is where another one of the issues comes in. How did the EFL allow him to take over Berry without having uh, a proper test? They say they've done everything within the rules, but these, rule, these rules to me either seem a bit too flexible or they need revision because we know what happened then. He uh, has consistently failed to pay players. He came in saying he would solve everything and that although he's not made of money, he, everyone will be paid. That was his main thing. And of course, that didn't happen the, the cliche came out, oh, it's much worse than we thought, which I'm, I'm sure many, many people say that, don't they? Uh, but if he'd have done the due diligence on the club, he would have known that. The simple answer is he's been trying to keep the club, not spend anything, yeah, until he got the CVA, which he keeps saying is the, how he saved the club. Uh, and when we got the CVA, of course, that means we only have to pay 25p in the pound back to these uh, investors. So that means local businesses miss out as a result of the financial mismanagement. But we thought it was enough to survive uh, because the High Court were really satisfied with the way that the HMRC and others will be paid. So the winding up petition was dismissed. But then you've got their own entity, the EFL, whose rules have to be uh, abided by. And he couldn't show proof of funds and never has. So even though all these last minute attempts for a takeover have been ongoing negotiations it didn't matter unless Steve Dale was going to willing to be selling the club and it was only I think in the five days before the deadline which has been postponed several times did he say yes okay I'll sell the club and by that time it was too late and that's why we're in the situation we're in it's been a complete disaster lots of things have, have made us come to this situation uh, it could have been avoided at any time. And I really am upset with particularly Stuart Day, Steve Dale and the league. Um, can I ask just about the fans? I mean, obviously, Bury is quite a small town. It's not particularly affluent, but the club itself has been in the Football League for 125 years now. Um, are the fans ambitious and, and do they turn on managers quickly generally? Do they want to see Bury kind of much higher up the football chain? Yeah, Bury is a small town. Uh, I think it's about 190,000 people. And the football club is, is a big part of the community. 
we may only get three to four thousand a week, uh, but the people who do come are very loyal, and you see the same faces week in week out. Now, when you have someone like Stuart Day who's parading the money and saying, "Let's we can get in the championship in five years," that did tend to put the fans in a position where they were expecting a great deal, and that creates that atmosphere of, uh, if anything other than promotion is a failure. I think up until then, the fans are always trying to be positive, but the, the, the real, the die-hard fans, I think they'd be quite happy for uh, the club to be in Leagues 1, League 2, that kind of level, without overreaching themselves and just having a solid, stable foundation, given the previous financial problems of the 80s and the 90s. Obviously, you, you were there the night that Barry got promoted last season. What, I mean, what, what did that feel like at the time? And how do you kind of reflect on that, that night now, knowing obviously what, what's happened since? Yeah, that night I was actually uh, helping commentate uh, for Tara FM, which is a local radio station. So I I wasn't with the Berry fans, but I could just see that mass of uh, white shirts behind the goal. And it was a brilliant night. We were, we were nervous before the game because we'd gone on a bit of a bad run when the news that people weren't being paid came out. So we were under pressure. We knew that a draw was enough because the other teams didn't want it either. They kept uh, losing. So... You were tense, but at the same time, you were like, well, whatever happens, we're in a bit of a, a mess financially, but let's just go up. Let's really enjoy this for what it is. This is football. And, and if we go up, you're thinking we've got more money. You know, We're a much more attractive proposition if we can get sold. So the, the game itself was very tense. Um, but in, to be honest, in the second half, when it was one all, neither side particularly looked like scoring again. So... It was just amazing. I got to go on the pitch when the final whistle went uh, and sort of meet the players, hug them and celebrate with them uh, for ages after the after the final whistle. So it was a, a euphoric moment. But yeah, at, at the back of your mind, it's tinged with that worry that this is brilliant. We've done what we set out to do. Ryan Lowe and the players are heroes. But how long is this uh, going to be sustainable? I, I have to be honest, I didn't think, I was never thinking this is the last match yeah. I'm going to see. Um, but uh, the longer it's gone on over the summer, we've had ages to try and sort this, and then it's the suspension of the matches that that made you think, "Hang on, this this could actually go really badly wrong." How, how did you? What were your emotions when when you when it became clear that they wouldn't be allowed to start the season with the fixtures? Astonished, really, because I I never heard of this happening until late last season with Bolton, and that was uh, a couple of games, one of which they managed to play. So. I was just presuming after the first one was uh, suspended that hopefully there's some kind of technicality where someone like Steve Dale, okay, maybe he isn't all he says and he doesn't have this money. Surely he's going to find someone or some way of getting some funds um, because it's just unthinkable, isn't it, that a situation be that bad where the players are there, albeit you know there are a lot of uh, free signings because everybody pretty much was released in the summer. You think we're ready to go. We played friendlies. So it must be very serious if the EFL is stopping you from playing football games. So it, 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 that, that was desperate, desperate stuff when I heard, first heard that. And then week by week, you're just checking your phone and for updates, have they approved the next game? And as each one's gone on, you just, you just feel more and more depressed and, and less hopeful for a solution to it. And can you tell me about obviously Tuesday night and, and how you found out and, and what, how you felt at that moment? Yeah, well, what a day. I mean, to start with, we'd had that reprieve on the Friday evening. There were people at Gig Lane celebrating champagne. 
because this takeover was going to be allowed to to go over the line, we thought. But then, of course, we just needed the deal to be completed by the Tuesday because we had the bank holiday weekend. So by, I think it was 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Tuesday, I, I, I was at court on my other job as a lawyer, and the news came in that this bid by CNN Sporting Risk, the bidders had pulled out and my heart just sank because I knew the only reason the EFL had extended deadlines to allow this deal to uh, get over the line. It wasn't for anyone to sort of buy the club and show proof of funds. It was really to get the paperwork sorted. And that, that was awful. And then, of course, just before the deadline, you hear about a lot of other offers that have come in but you never know with Steve Dale. He's been so uncooperative. He's he's not listened to anyone until the last moment. So it, you you just you just can't believe that, that this is here. We have lots of people offering to buy the club and save us, but because of this guy and because of the late schedule, we just couldn't get it through the line. So I was hoping maybe because of these last minute bids, there'd be an announcement from the FL on the Tuesday saying we've given Barry an extraordinary, I don't know, until the end of tomorrow. Uh, just to try and get anything through out of sympathy, if anything else. But just to just to issue a statement like that, about three or four paragraphs, after 134 years, very expelled. Uh, my brother, actually, Matthew, who'd been going to the games with for 30 years, he he texted our, we've got a family WhatsApp group, very expelled. And I just, yeah, I, I was close to tears. I, I, I just couldn't believe it. I still can't quite believe it. And... I think it's like it's almost like a death in the family. I think there's various stages to it, and I'm still in the shock stage. I've not I've not managed to grieve yet. Obviously, there's lots of talk still at the moment about appeals and possible ways out of this. But if if the worst does happen and Bury just stops existing, would you look to support a, a Phoenix club if a new if a new club was set up? Yeah, I mean if. If this uh, if this is it, definitely we are expelled from the league. We have to start again in the league anyway. But I think the first thing to do is we can't have Steve Dale still owning the club. Now, if the CVA, I think, relied on us being in the league, that perhaps would go out and that would mean liquidation would be a possibility, which sounds dreadful, but that would get it out of this guy's hands and we could start again. A lot of goodwill has been in the media and a lot of... Uh, attention turned to Barry, a lot of offers for uh, to, to buy the club. You'd hope that interest is still there if we do form a Phoenix club or start again at a, a lower level. I don't think Barry uh, FC is going to die with this decision, but it's a massive setback. I mean, it, even if we manage to get a club together for next season, it could be at Northwest County's level, something like that. And it could be another 10 years at least before we get back into the Football League. So just... It's just sad for, say, my, my nephew who, who wanted to go to the Berry Games and now he's not going to be able to see his, his, his club uh, back in the Football League unless something changes until he's an adult, which is, which is really, really sad. And obviously, the, the Bolton and Berry situations have been kind of running alongside each other for, well, quite a while now. Did, did it almost, well, did it make it harder seeing that obviously Bolton have survived now? And obviously, for Berry, that you, you'd wish that that was going to be the outcome for yourselves? Yeah, it's it's that weird one where, say, you and your and your mate were going for the same job, and your mate gets it. You're pleased for him, but really, you're really sad that you didn't get it. it it's great news for Bolton. I, I I always pictured that they'd be fine, despite how dreadful their situation looks. Just simply because they're, they're a big club, and you you cannot picture it. You can't picture someone who's in the Premier League 
what, 12 years ago from, from going under. It's just unthinkable. And I'm glad for them. And I've got a lot of friends, of course, who are Bolton fans. Uh, so I am pleased for them. No one wants to see any club go out of business. And I think that's part of the argument. I thought if the, the league have allowed them to have the, the time necessary for this, and theirs has been going on for longer, surely this might make them rethink the decision if there is any scope for appeal or anything like that. Because it can't be that for the sake of 24 hours, one team is expelled and one isn't. Now, I know they haven't. I think they've only suspended one game so far. But there's still time to complete some of these fixtures. The other thing I'd say is surely there's a way of uh, another solution would be very relegated and start life next season in League Two. That there must be other solutions to simply expelling. But no, I'm pleased. Uh, I'm pleased for uh, Bolton, and I hope that they can continue. The fans have been actually quite supportive of yeah. all of this because we've been yeah. going through these hard times together. Yeah, because I mean, obviously the AFL allowed Bolton to start the season. They didn't allow Barry. How do you kind of view the AFL's overall role in in this whole situation for Barry? Well, at, at first I was annoyed that they were doing that with the games, but at the back of your mind you're thinking, are they doing this because they know Steve uh, Dale is up to no good and they're trying to help Barry get rid of him? And so if they make it as dire as this, surely he's going to relent and somebody else is going to come in. That's what I thought they were trying to do. And therefore, that's what I thought they would extend the deadlines because they knew that if we had a proper owner, we'd be good to go and then carry on as before. But no, I, I've got to say, you know, there's much publicised fit and proper person test. They say it only applies uh, for proof of funds. It doesn't apply when someone's taking over the club. I think Stuart Dane, Steve Dale just simply went to the office in Preston one afternoon, signed a few forms, had a, had a check on whether he'd got any criminal convictions or previous directorships and that was it it's that simple and you're talking about a 134 year old club which is part of the football league we've never been relegated I think we're the only team who've we've scored a thousand goals in each division so we're we're a massive part of this country's footballing history mm. two-time FA Cup winners you could go on so just just to make it that easy for someone like him to take over uh, is, is a very dodgy rule it needs to be changed and if you're the EFL you, you can't be thinking oh, this, is, this has been awful for Barry. Our rules aren't good enough. We need to change them. You've got to be thinking, we, can, we, we need to change them so that Barry can survive. That's what you need to be thinking. It can't be that their own rules have, have ruined it for Barry because they're the gatekeepers of football in this uh, country. They should be doing everything they can to save it from people like Steve Dale and keep us playing. Absolutely. Uh, Tom, I can't imagine what you've been through this week, but thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much. Cheers. Chris, let's turn our attention now to uh, Bolton. Obviously, thankfully got saved this week with a sale. Um, but before we do that, I just want to ask your opinion as a, you know, Bolton and Bury are big rivals. How do you feel as a Bolton fan about what's happened to Bury this week? I mean, just unbelievably sad. I mean, like you say, Bolton and Barry have, have historically been rivals for as long as I've followed Bolton Wanderers. And, but it, we've never been in this situation where both clubs, are, you know, their entire futures have been in doubt. And you, you know, it, you know, I'm sure any football fan would say the same. You, you may have rivals, but you'd never wish that club to go out, mm. you know, to go out of the football league like in, this, in these circumstances. And obviously, you know, I, growing up in that area, I know a lot of Barry fans, and, it, and it's, it's just so sad that. You saw the images on TV the other night of how devastated they were. One, you're thinking, well, 
that that was so close to being Bolton. Mm. And two, you're thinking, well, it's just so terrible that any set of fans could ever be left in that situation where you've got no football for the rest of the season. And what happens then? But leaving that aside, how how are Bolton fans feeling after Wednesday's takeover? Very very relieved from a Bolton point of view. Like I say, it is very much tempered with the respect for what has happened with Barry. Mm. But um, but very relieved because our our fourteen fourteen day notice had been served by the yeah the football league that had things gone awry, we could have been out in t- in two weeks. Um, this takeover at Bolton had been going on since basically since the club went into administration in May. Um, it's been on the cards, but it had dragged on and on and on with about five or six different parties involved with credits and stuff like that that couldn't agree that there was a lot of bad blood between various people because of what had happened over the last two or three years. So it made doing a deal very difficult. And you're always worried that as long as those em- you know, enmities existed, whether it could it could end up like Barry had ended up with where there's no resolution. So... Thankfully, you know, there's just a lot of relief now that hopefully the Bolton Wanderers can, can start to move forward again. But obviously, the sale's gone through, but you're still minus 11 points in the, in the league and you have, what, four or five senior players at the mm. moment. So uh, this looks like the start of a saving process rather than the end, end of one. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, a long, long way back. I mean, I you know, remember, go, you know, I travelled around, all around Europe watching Bolton in, in the UEFA Cup and you think back to those days and think how... Lo- you know, even if Bolton did everything right now, how long would it take to get back to that sort of thing? Mm. Probably it won't happen. But, but you know, it's just that the 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 difference between where they were then and and where we are now, it, it's it's huge. And it, there's the, you know, like I say, there's no manager. A lot of players are going to need um, coming in now because they've been playing with kids for the last few weeks, and the kids, you know, did a remarkable job at first and gave their absolute best, but they started to get tired and the last three games conceded 15 goals it's been really hard for everyone so that in terms of yes the 12 point deduction means they're way behind in terms of any chance of staying up this season and and just rebuilding almost every aspect of the football club needs rebuilding because nothing none of the bills were being paid for months and there are so many problems that have come uh, because of that you know throughout the whole structure of the club the club shop the kit Mm. you know it goes way beyond just the football team and so why why are Bolton currently on minus 11 points? And I know you've been banging on for ages that it could be there could be further reductions mm. down the line. Is is that still a possibility? Uh, as far as we know, yeah. Um, the EFL still haven't said what what was going to happen regarding the Brentford game that the, that the players were on strike for at the end of last season. There was talk that they could well get a deduction for that, but still not even had a hearing for that. And that happened in I think late April. Mm. Uh, we had no indication what's going to happen with that. Whether there's going to be a deduction for that, obviously. Since then, in the last couple of weeks, um, Bolton w- were forced to call off the Doncaster game because of the kids' welfare and not wanting mm. to put them into too many games in the space of a week. So again, could there be deductions there? But at the same time, it, it's a tricky one because, because for the for the for the league itself, and you can see the point of the view of the, all the other clubs that you know they will think, well, it, you know, it, there needs to be a deduction as a a deterrent for this. But also from from the AFL's point of view. They they've been involved in this in the you know the the things they did over the last twelve months, even if not intentionally, I'm sure not intentionally, but have led to this situation. So how hard can they actually go on Bolton, given that that they've had a role in all this and what what's happened? As you say, the club have been forced to field a team of, of children essentially in, in recent weeks. There was one 
frankly, heroic nil-nil draw with Coventry. Mm. Um, but the, the last two games have been 5-0 defeats. What has that been like as, as a fan watching, watching kids play? Very, very strange. I mean, yeah, I, mean uh, I went up to the Ipswich game on, on, on Saturday and it just felt completely inevitable. You could tell that the kids were exhausted by that stage and weren't really capable of, you know, they were still trying at their absolute best, but they weren't really capable of competing with Ipswich at that game. And it was just a case of how many goals was it going to be? I mean, it, it was five with about 20 minutes left, you know. It could have got to seven or eight if they'd, if they'd have carried on. And it was basically, I, I spent the last 10 minutes of that game virtually watching second by second, waiting for the final whistle, which I've never felt like that before at a Bolton game. And it was just, please just let's just end this game. Back in May, uh, the former Watford owner, Lawrence Bassini, uh, almost bought the club. Um, what, what were the feelings like at that point? Was there disappointment that the sale hadn't gone through? Um, I think initially when he first came in, fans were kind of thinking, well, anyone but Ken Anderson. So he, even you know, Watford fans were warning us, you know, things yeah. didn't work out well at Watford for you. You might not want to take, have this guy as your own as your club. <laughs> but I think even at that point, Bolton fans were saying, well, you know, he can't be any worse than Ken Anderson, surely. Um, but obviously a lot of weird things happened in that month or so before he we went into administration where he tried to buy the club, didn't show proof of funds to the AFL, or at least the AFL have said that he's disputing that, but the AFL have, have said that he didn't show proof of funds. Um, he went on Sky Sports, he went into the studio at Sky Sports holding up a, a shirt with his name on it and <laughs> kind of insisting that, because th- this was the night before the Brentford game that got called off, insisting, I, I will make sure that this, this game tomorrow won't get called off. <laughs> and what happened? He got called off. <laughs> so I think he lost any credibility at, at that stage and the fans just said, well, you know what, we, we can't re- if you can't get this game on and he's just, done, he just made himself look, look like a fool, then... We kind of thought, well, can we really trust him to, yeah. to save the club at this point? Even if he's trying his best, which it did seem like he was generally trying his best, but did he seem like the sort of guy he could rely on and, and would definitely sort this out? Well, fans had their doubts. And I think from that point onwards, it was sort of a relief when that takeover fell through. You're thinking, well, even administration, you know, it was, was possibly a better option and get a different owner in. And he's still been, over the last couple of months, still been trying to force his way back into the deal. But I think at that point... Almost all the fans are saying, please, just, just stop, Lawrence. You know, mm. We've got football ventures who are trying to buy the club. Um, let's, let's go with them and, and leave it at that. We just heard from Tom, uh, understandably furious about some of the actions of the mm. EFL during this process. Uh, how do you think that the Football League has, has handled Bolton's case? Um, very badly. There's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I, I think... This, this situation that's happened with Bolton and particularly now with Barry is it, it, Sean Harvey's legacy at the EFL. It's, it's sad to say that, but that, the fact that what a club has, has now mm-hmm. finally gone for the first time in almost 30 years, that, that is his legacy. Yeah. Because Debbie Jevons is obviously in charge now, but she's inherited all this and had to try and, try and somehow clear this mess up. And Sean Harvey allowed Ken Anderson to come in and take over the club. Even February, March this year, he was insisting that Ken Anderson had, you know, pe- people in time would be grateful for what Ken Anderson had done for the club and that Bolton definitely had the, fun, the, the funds to, to last the end of the mm. season, which, as it turned out with players not getting paid and the, the match being cancelled against Brentford, then that obviously wasn't the case. So he, he backed Ken Anderson way too much and that exacerbated this situation. Um, and, you know, I'm sure he, he was probably trying to do his best for 
for the situation, but he just handled it so badly, and it, it, that has led to it led to us nearly going out of business. And and as Tom was saying, the things that EFL could have done a lot better with Barry, with how Steve Dale took over as well, and it's led to them going out of the football league. Back to the on-field matters. Phil Parkinson, the manager, he left Bolton last week. Um, what do you make of that? I kind of get the feeling that. Uh, what, well, I guess from the outside, it's slightly confusing to see because it's not like this was mm. a new financial difficulty no. at, uh, at Bolton. So why did he hang along, hang around so long? Well, I, I got the impression from from his media interviews that he didn't want to leave the club in the lurch while it was still in chaos. That he wanted to help this young team and just kind of see it through, and that, that maybe he would still be considering once the takeover came through, came through that he would he would step down at that point just because. You know, it's obviously been a, a hugely stressful three years for him, and he, he, he was sort of hinting that he probably had enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the, the new owners did did really want to keep him from from all accounts. So, it, it's uh, I mean, it has to be said that that with Bolton getting relegated last season, the, the fan base were split on him last season right. because of the style of football and the results. I personally would have kept him anyway because if you want a manager in League One to sort out a mess and get a team together. He's about as good as if he if he hadn't been manager of Bolton now he'd be the person that you'd go straight to if he was available to a point. Is there any chance he'd come back? Do you think? Uh, I don't think so from what he said since. Right. Uh, I think just he needed. I think he just. I get the impression he just needed a break. Yeah, it's been so incredibly. I mean, it, it's been stressful for the fans. It must have been ten times worse for him being yeah. in the middle of it. Uh, no, I mean, finally, I mean, what now? Like this, this one problem, which obviously mm. was existential. Has has been forced away, but but what happens to Bolton Wanderers now? Uh, well, the first thing they need to do is 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 get players in. Is you know we can't continue. I mean, it was, it was clear on Saturday against Ipswich with the five 0 that we couldn't ask those kids to play another game like that. Yeah. It wasn't fair on anyone. So they have to get players in. Obviously, the transfer deadline is imminent now, so that's the first priority. Um, but there's there's just an awful lot of other situations at the club that just need putting. Back in place, we don't say we don't have a kit. We don't have a, a kit sponsor. Mm. The club shop. I went to the club shop on Saturday. It's pretty much barren. So we need to get, you know, just basics like that. And that's that's just a f- two or three examples. I'm sure that spreads right through the club. Mm. The things that just need putting back in place. Um, but the first thing is is trying to get players in, and hopefully those players can can at least give us a chance of staying up. Now it's a big ask at this point, but hopefully that can happen. Well, Chris, I think, uh, like many people, I was delighted when the news came through on, on Wednesday evening about Bolton. Uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for, for talking it through with us. No problem. Now I'm joined by Kieran Maguire, who lectures on football finance at the University of Liverpool and runs the website priceoffootball.com. Uh, so, Kieran, how come the likes of Ken Anderson and Steve Dale don't fall foul of the fit and proper person test, as it is? Well, the as it is now called the, the owners and directors mm. test, um, it is a box-ticking exercise, and the only people prevented from being an owner or a director of a football club is somebody who has an outstanding conviction um, or is banned from football in any other capacity. So, therefore, 99.9% of the population would pass those particular tests. Uh, is, there, is it possible to to fundamentally change it and make it not about that, tighten it up uh, and kind of ensure that it is more difficult to become someone like this? I I think actually it would be very difficult to have watertight rules. Mm. 
even if you have serial asset strippers such as Steve Dale, he's n- never done anything illegal. Mm. So therefore, on what grounds could you ban someone? Um, I think what could perhaps happen is that should a new owner come into the game, then he or she is monitored to a far greater degree mm. by the regulatory bodies. Because we saw Lawrence Bassini, for instance, um, wanted to take over at Bolton despite his management at, at Watford. Is is it basically just a case of, actually, that would be a very difficult way to define how you can stop someone becoming an owner, even if all the football fans turn around and go, this guy's clearly not going to run it well? Absolutely. What you will find, if that if the rules are tightened, there will still be loopholes, mm. and anybody with um, a will to get around those rules will employ an accountant, a lawyer, an advisor, and they will make it very difficult for the EFL. And we'll end up with things going through courts. And it's all taking away from football, which is ultimately what we all want to focus on. So it's difficult to change the rules as they currently stand. But how much can we say that the EFL are at fault for what has happened with Bury and Bolton? Well, in respect of Bolton, Ken Anderson had been banned from being a company director in the UK for eight years. Now, that should send a, a warning sign. If, if I'm recruiting, or if you're recruiting anybody for a, a particular job, you do a background check. If that individual does have a checkered history, then what you would do is put them in a probationary period where their activities are monitored, where perhaps any proposals they make have to be sanctioned and agreed by the EFL itself, and actually just make it difficult mm. for them to be the owner or director. And if they're aware that's how difficult their role is going to be, the chances are that they're going to walk away. And therefore, whilst you don't need a test as such, you just make it difficult for them to act in the way that they have historically done so. Um, You've written about 442, uh, about a salary cap this week. How would that help in a situation like this? Well, I tried to assess a salary cap. And and personally, I don't think it would be... Uh, feasible. Hmm. Um, we do already have uh, a salary cap in, in, in place in League One and League Two. Um, salary caps reinforce the status quo. If you have a large club with large resources, then it can afford to pay a higher rate of wages. So therefore, what's going to happen? Where, where is the next Manchester City going to come from? If you look at the success of Wolverhampton Wanderers, they've been funded by owners. They've spent a huge amount on wages in order to get out of the championship. They were a delight to watch last season in the Premier League, and that was on the back of paying high wages. So is there a downside in respect of that? No. And is it good to have a challenge to the existing elite? I think the answer is yes. We wouldn't have a Manchester City or Chelsea had it not been for owners coming in and upping the wage bill significantly without worrying too much about the consequences because they had the resources to do so. Wages aren't the problem. It's funding the wages, which is the issue. And certainly what I found from from reading that piece was that actually looking at the way that wages in the championship are structured, it seems that if you had a salary cap, barely any team would, would be able to meet it anyway, and it would have a pretty fundamental effect on the transfer market. But what, why are so many teams in financial trouble these days? Um, what has happened in recent years is that we have seen cost inflation, and, and wages are clearly the, the biggest cost mm. for any football club. But what I think we've also seen is, is a new breed of owner who is very ambitious And they come in and they run the football club for a few years with the intention of trying to get up to the Championship or the Premier League. And this was actually the reason why Berry's problems initially arose. 
you had Stuart Day, who was putting in £50,000 a week of his own money, except it was his company's money, mm. into Bury to try to make the, the club successful and, and to get further up. And there are many people like Stuart. Now, when things go wrong with their personal business, that has a ripple effect in respect of the club itself. And how many other clubs could be at risk? In the lower leagues, um, I think that there's probably eight to ten in League One and League Two. Um, I think also, as far as the championship is concerned, we even saw clubs such as Reading miss their wage wage payments last year. It, okay, it was only for a couple of days and it was only once, but this is normally a big red, big red flag. Mm. It doesn't happen in other lines of business with the regularity that it does in football. So if you take a look at those clubs, and we're talking Morecambe, Macclesfield, Southend, Oxford, and, and so on, I, I, be, I would be very concerned about their club's future because that is indicative of a club which is living from hand to mouth. You only need something to go wrong for a week or two. So let's say that we get to January or February this year and we have a long, uh, a long cold spell, two or three home matches in a row are, are postponed, and that extra trickle of income that's coming in could be enough to tip clubs over the limit and finally some people have speculated that part of the problem here is that there are simply too many professional clubs in England should some teams in the EFL consider perhaps going semi-professional to to find a more sustainable economic model I I'm, I'm totally against that um, I, I think the a football club is so important to a town of city in terms of giving its identity and the quality of football is important as well mm. I think it's not a case of having fewer fully professional clubs, I think what has to happen is that owners have to turn around to players and agents and simply refuse the wage demands which are being placed on them. You don't have to get promoted. You can still contribute significantly. If you look at the likes of Accrington with Andy Holt, who I think is a fantastic example oh, him, of, <laughs> of bringing a club up to a standard, but what he has done, he's engaged the whole community. Yeah. Myself and Andy had a bit of a, a Twitter fight when we first... No, when we, Andy Holt, surely exactly. not. Exactly. And, and this was purely because Accrington have published their results mm. and, and I'm obsessed with detail and, and total transparency. And small clubs only have to produce cut-down versions of accounts. So I said, well, the club's done really well. It's broken even, but I can't say any more than that because that's all they've shown. Mm. Andy heard about this. He was straight on to me. He says, right, let's meet up. <laughs> Went down the pub. Andy turns up with two carrier bags full of everything and says, you can write what you want. Here's it. You want transparency. And then he demanded that I write it all up and stick it up on, on the blog. And that's absolutely fantastic. The guy is a breath of fresh air. Yeah, yeah. You've got Mark and Nicola at Tranmere, exactly the mm. same attitude. They are trying to use normal business behavior and practice. But the problem with football in the lower leagues is that we've got too many owners who wouldn't run their own business in such a manner. But when it gets to football, they get giddy mm. and they start making dumb decisions and they start making short term gambles when ultimately, whilst I want my club to be promoted this season in, a, in an ideal world, more than that, I want it to be in existence in five years yeah. and 10 years time. I think that was something really common that's come up with Bury fans this week is that actually the idea that you want a sustainable future is is much is much bigger than than wanting short-term success and and when the offer comes down in such a stark choice then it's really obvious which way fans want to go yeah yeah and i've i've become sort of friends with a few berry fans you know via social media 
via sort of you know, having the odd word on in, in TV and radio and so mm. on. And you can tell their passion, but it's not Berry or Bolton. It's all of us. We mm. all support our teams with the same degree of enthusiasm and passion and love. We know football was a crazy thing, but the existing rules of the EFL, they talk about those rules are called profitability and sustainability rules. Mm -hmm. Well, they're nothing to do with profitability. And by God, they're nothing to do with sustainability either. Kieran McGuire, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all we've got time for today. Remember, the season preview issue of 442 is in shops now. Pick it up for profiles of every league club, including on the financial woes at Barry and Bolton. If you want to read more in-depth coverage on this topic, head to 442.com, where Tom Pickup and Chris Flanagan have gone into more detail about Barry and Bolton, respectively. Kieran Maguire has written about the possibility of a salary cap for EFL clubs, and Gary Parkinson has penned an incredible essay on what other English clubs can learn from the past few weeks. You can find links to those pieces in the show notes for this episode. There will also be more on the subject in the magazine over the coming months, so keep an eye out for that. The next issue of 442 magazine is on sale next Tuesday, 3rd of September, and includes a feature on the woes of another founding member of the Football League, Notts County. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give us a positive rating on iTunes. If you haven't enjoyed it, our Twitter handle is at 442. I'm sure you can take it from there. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Tom, Chris and Kieran for joining us today. The music you've heard is by Nathaniel Wyvern, licensed under Creative Commons. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.